especially delighted today to have Valerie Hudson. Valerie is the George H.W. Bush Chair and Director of Women, Peace, and Security at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. She has written a number of books and articles, including two critically acclaimed books, Sex and World Peace, particularly provocative title, and Bear Branches. And she's also the creator of an incredible program that we will talk about today called the Woman Stats Project. Valerie, welcome. We're so delighted to have you here in Washington this week. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. And a big thank you to our friends at runningstart.org who are hosting us today for this conversation. Uh, really, really appreciate their hospitality. So, Valerie, women and national security. It's an interesting pairing. How did this come about? Tell us a little bit about your work. Well, I've got to tell you, when I was in graduate school, back in the last century, um, I did an entire uh, doctoral program uh, in security studies, and you would have never known from that coursework that there were women on the planet Earth. It really wasn't until the turn of the century, and especially I think with uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, that people began to say, you know, uh, there is a linkage between what's going on with women and national security. Uh, and I think the literature has really grown since then to include many different dimensions of national security, macro-level studies, micro-level studies, uh, and uh, I think the policymaking community has really picked up on this. How did it come about? Like, what was the sort of original nexus of the idea and the thought to really focus on this area? Well, I can tell you how it came about for me. Um, I, as I've said, I was trained in sort of a womanless world of security studies and, um, you know, uh, proceeded merrily along my way, continuing that womanless world in my own classes. And yet there was a time I was teaching a course, it was actually not in security studies, it was actually a graduate methodology, where we were talking, uh, we, were, we were reading examples of really great social science um, methodology work. And we were reading um, a book about uh, peasant China. And um, somewhere in that book, it talked about how um, the, the largest, most, um, you know, uh, catastrophic rebellions in China during the 19th century uh, all originated in Chinese provinces that had the worst sex ratios. That is, far more men um, than women because uh, little girls were being subject to infanticide and differential feeding practices and so forth. And I, I remember I went to bed that night and then in the middle of the night as sometimes happens to human beings, I woke up with the title of the book in my head, Bare Branches, The Security Implications of Asia's Surplus Male Population. And I remember thinking to myself, that's crazy. I'm not a China expert. I'm not a demographic expert. How, you know, I, I, I can see how it would absolutely apply in the modern day, but um, why would I do this? And the answer that sort of came from the universe was, because you're the only one who will. And so I took that and ran with it. And uh, as you said, the book was award-winning. Um, I have uh, newspaper clippings from the first year. It went viral worldwide, and that, 
that set of clippings is uh, four inches thick. Uh, we even had the China People's Daily that reviewed our book. I mean, it was just um, outstanding. And so from that initial foray, uh, I was greatly encouraged that I should continue and to look at um, more than just sex ratio alteration and how other forms of subordination and oppression of women could impact uh, what we see in terms of national security, stability, resilience, you know, you name it. That is so fascinating. I mean, it's a great example of having an idea, a passion, something that speaks to you, and really going for it. Mm -hmm. um, this is precisely what she said she said mm -hmm. is all about, and it's why we're so thrilled to have you. So um, through that initial work, you've developed the Woman Stats Project. So how did you get from bare branches to women's stats? Because those sort of happened in fairly close proximity, right? Right. It was when I realized that there was really something to this idea, something that had not been fully explored before, that I thought to myself, you know, I could make a real contribution here. I have a passion for this. I had a daughter, you know. Um, I felt very strongly that um, how is it possible that one could really horribly mistreat half of your population and not have it show up in terms of, you know, what's happening with your nation state in terms of security? And, um, and yet I realized at the time, and this is different from the way things are now, Laura, but back at the time, there was very little data, cross-national data about women. And this was in what year? Um, we started Women's Stats in 2001. Okay. So, you know, 2000, 2001, we were looking around. The UN had a small database called WISTAT that had a few indicators, you know, so like maternal mortality and primary school uh, education of girls and so forth. Um, but, you know, those are great indicators, don't get me wrong. But there's lots and lots and lots of things that are happening in the lives of women that are not showing up in those kinds of, of databases. like what is the average age of marriage for girls, right? What is the extent of polygamy within the society? You know, um, what kinds of problems with um, domestic workers, migrant workers? I mean, so many things. And we thought to ourselves, we can't even ask interesting questions until we have a database that's comprehensive enough for us to be able to answer them. So that's where we started the Women's Stats Project. It's a research project, but the research project is built upon a massive, comprehensive database on the status of women in the world. So we look at 176 countries. That's all countries that have at least 200,000 population. So we have Vanuatu, but not Andorra or Liechtenstein. Right? Um, and we have about 360 variables and scales, and we have a team of about uh, uh, two dozen coders at a variety of universities that updates the database every single day. Uh, so uh, we're, we've got really good data from about 1995 on. We have a few older pieces of data, but you know, pretty much from 95 on, and that gives us a longitudinal and cross-national database in order to conduct rigorous statistical analyses on these links. And that's really our unique contribution. So many good people have done wonderful work in case studies, in deconstruction of texts and so on to see these links. But I think we're, we were really the ones who came out of, of the gate charging in terms of large and statistical analyses that could not be dismissed as, you know, 
sentimental anecdotes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did you come up with, it, it seems like there are just an infinite number of potential variables. So how, how do you, how did you and how do you maintain that list of variables so that you're getting the right data set, that you're maintaining it, that it's maybe evolving, mm -hmm. I would imagine. Mm -hmm. How does mm -hmm. that work? Yeah, well, you know, you can imagine that in the first few years, I mean, we, we started out with 27 variables. Now we're at 360. You right. can imagine that during the first few years, we were adding two um, uh, variables to the database hand over fist as we were like, oh, well, yeah, we need to look at women's mobility. Oh, yeah, well, we need to look at dress codes for women. And were you going to these places? <coughs> were you going? Were you traveling all over the world or members of the team? Like how, how, did you, how did you decide? Right. Well, we started out with only 27 variables, and of course, we're up to 360. So during those early years, we added variables hand over fist as we came to the realization, well, uh, yeah, oh my gosh, we also have to look at women's mobility. Oh, yeah, my gosh, we need to look at dress codes for women. Oh, my gosh, we need to look at study restrictions for women because, uh, you know, in certain countries, women are actually forbidden from studying certain subjects, if you can believe that. So as we sort of went on this journey, we, you know, we did expand it, um, uh, you know, really to a, to a great extent. Now, you asked the question about whether we were able to travel to all those countries, and I wish I could tell you that we could, but I think you know that uh, social science academic research is not well-funded, so no, I did not have the resources to do that. And you might not have been welcome. I mean, you know, there would probably be somewhat dangerous to travel to some of these places because the nature of the data was going to tell a particular story. And very sensitive in many cases, that's absolutely right. Um, so we, we have a strategy of we uh, go out and we, we code what we call periodic reports. So every four years, nations have to submit a report to CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of Dis All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. We also go out and find very, um, information that we need in order to put in our database. Uh, and so we'll, we'll go out and we'll talk to country experts, we'll uh, comb the internet, we'll make formal inquiries of, um, of uh, women's groups in other countries or even government ministries. So what we do is we triangulate data because that's extremely important when you're talking about data about women. So for example, if I showed you the official rape rates of our 176 countries, you would begin to laugh, mm, right? Wh why? Well, because some countries take rape seriously. So if I gave you the rape statistics from Finland, you would feel pretty confident. But if I gave you the reported rape prevalence in Equatorial Guinea, you know, you would laugh because even though that's a, that's a very difficult um, civilization, a society for women, right, the rape rate appears minuscule, almost, mm. you know, like there is no rape. Um, likewise, if you looked at the North Korean CEDAW report, you would uh, read that it is a paradise for women where they have eliminated all forms of gender equality and it is the only country in the world where that has happened. Clearly, <laughs> you need to triangulate data, right? And get uh, you know, what are called shadow CEDAWs that NGOs will do. Um, parallel CEDAWs in which they attempt to rectify, shall we say, errors in the official CEDAW report. Uh, when you're talking about rape prevalence, you need to get estimates from those who actually 
uh, cope with the problem of rape victims on the ground and so forth, so that you can offset the very poor quality of data um, concerning women in, in the world. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, it's incredible work. So now you are, um, how many years in? Women's, the Women's Stats Project started six, six years ago? No, Women's Stats started in 2001. So 2001. we're actually uh, on our, what, 17th year okay. now. So in addition to making changes to the variables, adding variables, uh, continuing to, to, to tweak the data collection efforts, those sorts of things, what else have you learned? Oh, uh, well, one of the most wonderful things is our database is such a fantastic platform for asking and answering questions that you just couldn't ask or answer before. And so, uh, for example, we were, um, uh, we were given a Minerva Initiative grant, a three-year grant from the U.S. Department of Defense to do intensive data collection on specific variables that we said were um, predictors or early warning indicators of national instability. And every single one of those indicators were indicators about women. Yeah, and just, just to put a finer point on that, this is the Department of Defense. The like United States the Department United of States Defense. The United States Department of Defense. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you would, a State Department, sure, that mm -hmm. would be, you know, safe assumption that the State Department might be willing to fund something like that, but the Department of Defense. That's right. fascinating. Right. Well, they consider it non-traditional security threats. So in a sense, that's right. Remember my womanless world of my doctoral program in security studies, right? It's not traditional to look at what's going on with women when you assess the national security of a country. So even though they, they lumped us under non-traditional, I think um, you know, our findings are so strong um, that I hope it's filtering into, you know, the larger Defense Department that looking at women really tips you off to things that are going on in society that are threats and threats to uh, troops on the ground. So that you can really be on the cutting edge mm -hmm. and have much better insights. It's what the military calls situational awareness. Interesting. Very interesting. So, Valerie, looking forward, Right, if you had a, a crystal ball or a wish list, like where do you hope all of this will take you in three years, five years time? Well, I don't know where uh, it's going to take me. I mean, I'm still churning out research. We're writing a, a brand new book, which we'll call The First Political Order, Sex, Governance, and National Security. More which, sex. Uh, more sex. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and. Uh, uh, that will be the culmination of this uh, three years of work that we did for the Department of Defense. And I think will really make an impact on, on how we gauge national security. Um, so that's continuing on. Um, I'm also involved in lots of little projects. So for example, my most recently published article was on how uh, uh, exorbitant bride price drives recruitment. Uh, into terrorists and rebel groups. So expand on that a little. You sure. said bride price. R bride price, yes. Um, even though the terms bride price and dowry are often used interchangeably, um, technically speaking, bride price is money that's paid to the bride's father, the bride's family, in order for the marriage to take place. Um, dowry refers to money paid to the groom's family in order for um, the marriage to take place. Uh, and when we're looking at uh, bride price societies, uh, believe it or not, I could show you a map, is, is that um, 
probably close to two-thirds of the uh, countries um, in the world still practice forms of bribe price. Uh, and what happens is that bribe price tends to be a universal flat tax on the young men of the society. They have to come up with the going rate for a bride. And if you've ever been involved in real estate, you know what happens when you get that kind of um, situation. You get bubbles, incredibly fast moving bubbles that occur where bride price can escalate a thousand fold within just the space of you know, less than five years pricing young men completely out of the marriage market in a society where a young man is not even considered a young man but still a teenager until he actually marries. So you get this in incredible pressure, well where am I going to get this money? And terrorist groups will say, you join us, we'll give you the bride price. Or like the, for example northern Nigeria, you join us, we'll abduct you a bride and we'll leave a token bride price, which would be far less than you'd have to pay on the floor in order to legitimize that taking of that girl, right? And, and not just in Nigeria, but many other places as well. For example, do you remember the Mumbai massacre back in 2008? Sure. Well, you may recall that they killed every single terrorist except one, right? There was one that was left alive and they debriefed him heavily before they tried him and hanged him in 2009. And uh, you can actually find the video of his interrogation, his first interrogation, uh, on YouTube. And so we got it translated, and they're like, why did you join Lashkar Taliba? That's the uh, terrorist group. Why did you join them? Why did you join Lashkar? It's for jihad, wasn't it? It's for jihad. And he's like, what jihad? My father told me to join Lashkar. Why would your father tell us you to join this terrorist group? He's a terrorist too, right? No, no. He said, if you join this group, we'll get enough money to pay the bride prices for you and your brothers. You know? So if you're not looking at what's going on, you know, how society is structuring that male-female relationship, you're not going to see, you know, those kinds of linkages. So when I, I tell folks about, you know, the bride price situation, I'm talking to the Department of Defense, you know, the light bulbs go on. Right. In fact, after the article came out, um, a State Department employee actually emailed me from Kabul <laughs> and said, you know, your article has given me a vocabulary and now that I have the vocabulary, I see something I never saw before. And she said, one of my Afghan colleagues came in and told us how we needed to help young men with wedding costs in Afghanistan. And I was like, wedding costs, they're a problem everywhere. You should see what wedding costs are like in the US. They got the doves and the, you know, she so says over the top. And she made fun and she made light of it. Interesting. Right? And she said, after I read your article, I now see what he was trying to tell me, mm -hmm. right? Which is the young men of his community are joining the Taliban because they cannot afford bride price. Okay, but I didn't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear what he was trying to tell me. That is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's a story I've never heard before, and I would venture lots of people have not hmm. heard that before. That's incredible. That's really incredible. So you're, you're getting a good response to what you have, and you see um, the U.S. government in particular. What about other allied countries? What about other nations that are using this data? Oh, I think that's, that's absolutely happening. I was fortunate enough 
um, to be um, a Fulbright Distinguished Chair in Australia for the first six months of this year. And I was uh, shocked, first of all, um, at uh, the fact that so many um, people in the government had uh, knew of my work. Um, I was invited to address um, you know, the Office of Prime Minister and, Ca and Cabinet. I was uh, asked to address the Defense Ministry. I was asked to address the Senior Executive Service. And I was asked to be the opening speaker at the brand new Gender Advisors course stood up by the Australian Defense Forces. Uh, and so uh, the Australians, you know, are now, I, I think as the U.S. has stepped back, right, with the current administration on these kinds of issues, I think some of our allies like Australia have stepped forward. So the Australians insisted upon a gender component to the bilateral U.S.-Australian uh, military exercise, which is called Talisman Sabre, um, because they feel so strongly about this linkage. We could go on all day and then some because your work is so incredibly fascinating, but there's a few other topics that I'd really like to talk about. One is the Bush School of Government and Public Service. And in the interest of disclosure, I serve as an advisory member to um, a board of advisors for the school. It's a, it's a school of government and public service that was created in the name of former President George H.W. Bush. The school is incredibly fortunate to have you. But why the Bush School, Valerie? How did you pick them, or how were they lucky enough to get you? Oh, I, I think it was um, mutual. Um, I, I'd always wanted to teach in a school of, of uh, public service and, and government because uh, training um, young graduate students to enter careers of public service is something that I feel very, very deeply about. Um, and I think from the Bush School's point of view, I think I brought, um, you know, expertise in the field of what we call women, peace, and security that they, they did not have. But, you know, you have to remember that George H.W. Bush um, was actually a, a promoter of women's careers. He put women in positions that they had never been in before during his administration, like Carla Hill, the trade representative, Catherine Bertini was head of the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization. I mean, he broke some barriers there, but I think that's an unsung story. And actually, I'm thinking of writing an article uh, that would uh, memorialize, you know, some of the firsts that we saw in Bush 41. And uh, it was very delightful for me to learn um, that Barbara Bush was thrilled that the George H.W. Bush chair was going to someone who was going to study the linkage between women and national security. So I felt very much at home, very much supported. Uh, and uh, I know that the students at the Bush School are getting you know, training in gender analysis that will make them much better public servants. Mm -hmm. So is your student body population, is it pretty evenly split, men to women? And do you find a sort of a disproportionate number of young women gravitating into women, sort of women in national security, or is it is it also pretty pretty mixed, pretty evenly split? Well, our student population is pretty split. So about 50-50 men and women, which is which is just terrific. Um, but I will tell you, we have some work to go in terms of um, attracting male students to the women, peace, and security um, agenda. Um, I think perhaps under the previous administration more young men would have seen that 
you know, being able to put on their resume that they'd been trained in gender analysis would be, a, a, you know, a career advantage for them. Um, I think young men now look at it and are not sure that that would, you know, help them at all. Um, I try to disabuse them of that notion because it's true that, for example, all USAID contracts have a gender component. The, uh, the U.S. National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security is now law, right? Just this past uh, uh, fall, it was made law. So that means that DOD, State Department, USAID, and a few other agencies will have explicit commitments um, for gender analysis. And that, again, it would be, I think, a career boost for them to be able to say, I could be that gender person that you need in order to, uh, you know, hit your obligations under the U.S. National Action Plan. So, you know, we, um, we currently have the bulk of our students who um, um, take the Women, Peace, and Security concentration are um, female, but we do have a, a, a good minority of men. So, for example, this past semester I had, um, I had uh, two men from uh, Pakistan and I had uh, two American men who were in my course on women and nations. What surprises you? You know, when, you, when you, your students come in, I mean, are there surprises for them? Are there surprises for you? Oh, they were delightful. I just, it was, it was amazing. The greatest joy that I see is that after, you know, 14 weeks of being in the women and nations class, my students will start saying, I never noticed this before, but, I was sitting in my IR theory class and I realized I was sitting in a class that was just like the womanless world that you described from your graduate school. You know, or I went home for Thanksgiving and for the first time I understood more about the dynamics within my family. So on a policy level, academic level, even on a personal level, you see people starting to see and hear things that they had never noticed before, and they start putting two and two together, and then they start questioning, well, why does it have to be this way? Couldn't it be different? And then they start asking themselves, could I be the one who helps make the difference? And that's, boy, I gotta tell you, that's the coolest feeling in the world. That's amazing. That's where, I would, I would imagine, where the meaning and the fulfillment and, you know, not every day is gonna be a picnic in any job that you have, but getting that reinforcement where, you know, the information that you're sharing and that you're teaching is illuminating these young minds, both women and men, mm -hmm. um, is we touch on. And that is feminism. This, mm -hmm. this word feminism that still mm -hmm. is so elusive that Webster's named it the word of the year because so many people had Googled, what does feminism mean? That's incredible. <laughs> Where are we, Valerie, in this quest to define once and for all feminism and why is it, and you and I have already talked about this, I have the benefit of having had this conversation with you already, about the fact that some folks are sort of repelled by the word. It can be politically divisive in a way that that's not really what the word means. What do you make of all this? How, how do we think about feminism in the year 2018? Wow, that's some question. Um, of course, I can only speak as an American because I think these kinds of conversations are taking place you know, all over the world. And, and I think there's so many definitions of what feminism means that I, I think sometimes the word has almost, you know, been instrumental in building wedges between people who would otherwise be allies. Um, and 
you know, you almost wish that we could come up with some new Dr. Seuss type word that could take the place <laughs> of feminism so that people wouldn't have these immediate emotional, you know, reactions. Do you have any suggestions? I don't know. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> so, you know, there's people who say that, you know, um, you know, if you're conservative, you can't be a feminist, or if you hold this position, you can't be a feminist, or, you know, and, oh my gosh, I thought feminism was supposed to be a unifying force, but I've seen it used as a cudgel, you know, to, to hurt people. Um, and that's one of the reasons I'm uh, really thrilled about your podcast uh, series. You know, I'm the George H.W. Bush chair at the George H.W. Bush School at Texas A&M. And if you know nothing about Texas, I can assure you that this is a very conservative environment um, and a, a very religious environment as well. You know, the school is certainly not religious in any fashion, but the student body tends to be quite religious as well. And those are primarily religions that would be considered to be on the more conservative spectrum within um, American politics. But I can also tell you that uh, these very same students uh, have, have some core feminist beliefs, such as do unto women as you would do unto men. <laughs> treat women as if they are human beings. Treat women as if they can make a real contribution, that they have intellect, talent, skills, vision that are worthwhile. You know, if you pay a man a certain rate, you should absolutely pay a woman a certain rate. You know, my students don't have arguments about this. Right. So in, in a sense, I think if we could go back to that, you know, baseline core that feminism means that women are full human beings, uh, I think we would get a lot more uh, agreement. So um, I, I certainly do have students who have said, um, I realized I was a feminist and went out to lunch with my friends and sort of announced that they were like, <gasps> but notice it was when they understood you know, they had a better understanding of what feminism meant. They they felt comfortable in saying that they were feminists. Yes, and, and I friends think had the, Googled Miriam right. Webster too. Exactly. <laughs> Those are the conversations I think that really have to take place, right? Yeah, Before true. we can unify across, you know, um, political backgrounds, uh, religious backgrounds, and so forth. Yeah, this is amazing. One of the things we like for our guests to leave us with is either a life hack or a piece of actionable advice, something that you live by, something that when someone asks you, you know, Dr. Hudson, what's the one piece of advice you would give me, whether it's a student or someone else, anything that you want to share with our listeners around sort of those, those terms, life hack, piece of advice, something that's really been important to you as you've lived your life. Well, <clears throat> being a mother, I probably have a gazillion life hacks that I've tried to share with my children. Well, and you're not just a mother, but I, I should say you're the mother of eight, which is really impressive in and of itself. And we should talk about <laughs> certainly how you, how you make life work with eight children. That is, that is, a, real, that is a challenge. <laughs> and I applaud you. <laughs> uh, I think every mother, you know, faces uh, some terrific challenges in our society. And so... You know, I think one of the things I definitely tell my young uh, women students is that um, our society tries to tell men they can have a both-and life. 
you can have a career, and you can have family. But it often tells its young women it can have an either-or life. They can have family or they can have a career. And so most of the time young women are coming to me and they say, I've been told I can have an either-or life, but it, apparently you have not, so what, you know, what did you do? And I said, well, the, you know, the first thing is actually an attitude change, which is, you know, forget that either-or, right? Just, you know, say to yourself that that's, uh, you know, completely false and that you are bound and determined that you will um, be able to combine family and career. It may be in a different way than you would imagine now, Right? It may be that at certain seasons of your life you have to dial back your career a little bit and foreground the family, and then at other times, you know, you do the opposite, that there are these seasons, right? And, but, you know, never doubt, right, that you have a contribution to make. And then I say jokingly, I say, look at the world around you, right? For the past, what, 10,000 years, men have created the world in which your children will live. Do you like it? And when they say no, I say, then the mothers of those children need to be at the table, don't they? So they can make a better world. So being contributing your talents to the world and being a good mother go hand in hand. Because otherwise the mothers are the ones who are missing at the table when the world is shaped for their children. Valerie, such a pleasure. We can't thank you enough for being with us. Thank you, thank you. You will find out more about Valerie and the Women's Stats Project on our website where we will post show notes, Valerie's biography, information about her books and various other things at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Valerie, thank you again. My it's pleasure. Terrific. And a big, big thank you to our executive producer, Janine, who is here uh, behind the scenes and doing an amazing job. So thank you all. Thank you.